Welcome to the Homo Schedule, where we're corrupting your children into celebrating their wins and being proud of the journey. I'm Jasmine, your personal assistant in charge of all your Birkenstocks. And I'm Liv, and I'm drawing up a chart of everybody's dietary restrictions. Would you mind emailing me yours so oh, I can put it in? That's <laughs> going to be a lot. And that's so funny because no one in this duo ever has done that before for an entire cast of people. <laughs> Why do you think me. I got the idea? <sighs> Let's review the minutes from last week's meeting. <laughs> Liv, what's going on, my friend? Oh, man. I I don't even know what has been going on. My sense of time is shot. I never know what day of the week it is anymore. <laughs> I never know what I was doing five minutes ago or what I'm doing next month. I feel like I'm Same. floating in space. How are you? You know, I'm good. I um, recently moved back into my apartment in LA. Mm. I forgot about the painting that I had commissioned last summer. Tell me about this painting. I think I've told you about it. This is a picture of my friend and I like having a moment that I decided to have commissioned by my favorite artist. And it's very gay. There's a big rainbow around it and a lot of stars. And um, it really makes me laugh because why did I do that? (laughs) No, no. Why aren't we doing that more? I think is the better question. (laughs) It's like, of of course you did that. I would do that. I think that's the right thing to do. It reminds me of a specific time in my life. I just got out of a relationship that wasn't so great. I was free, happy for the first time. And I decided, you know, $1,200 on a painting of me and my friend naked was what I needed in my room. Now you've you've told me about the painting before, but I've never seen the painting. It's here. Let me see if I can show you. Podcasts are a visual medium. <laughs> but for you, just, just for, for me. You. Can you see it? Oh my God, it's beautiful. Isn't it? Yeah, it's so nice. Also like commissioning a painting of like you and a naked friend with rainbows and stars around it is like peak gay agenda advancement <laughs> behavior. It really is. <laughs> and insane. this is my favorite lesbian painter. So, oh my God. You know what? We'll put the link to her website in the episode description so y'all can buy her paintings if you want uh, Literally, to. we absolutely will do that. She's fantastic. So cheers to that. Cheers to that. And to gay oil paintings. <laughs> <laughs> get, get, get oil paintings of yourself naked with your friends you're about to hook up with. Anyway, Liv, what is on the agenda for today? Jasmine. We are talking to Carmen Maria Machado, (laughs) who is the author of the best-selling memoir In the Dream House and the award-winning short story collection Her Body and Other Parties. She has been a finalist for the National Book Award, and she's the winner of many awards, including the Lambda Literary Award for Lesbian Fiction, the Lambda Literary Award for LGBTQ Nonfiction, and the Shirley Jackson Award. In 2018, the New York Times listed Her Body and Other Parties as a member of the New Vanguard, one of the 15 remarkable books by women that are shaping the way we read and write fiction in the 21st century. She is... One of my favorite writers in the world. And I was so happy that we got to talk to her. The way you read that was so funny because I felt like you did the same thing you did with the interview. Before she got on, you were like, beep, boop, ba bop And she got on and you were like, hello, I am serious. I'm yeah. a professional. <laughs> and I want to impress you. And I was just like, oh, hi, Carm. What did I say right before she got on? That I don't remember. I was like, Jasmine, you can't say that to a guest. And I was like, no, I can tell. She's chill, you guys. I, this episode was an exercise in me staying cool. <laughs> you did a good job. So you've been a fan of Carmen for a while. I came across her writing when her body and other parties had like kind of recently come out. Cause I'm, I'm a big fan of short stories. I'm a big fan of like magic realism and like and horror writing and like short fiction. So I was like, this is perfect. Thank you. I will read this. And I loved it. And I've followed everything she's written ever since. I had heard of her body and other parties because you had talked about it and you told me to read it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, hope you guys are ready for it. Buckle up. Let's enter it into the record. Special. 
Hello, Carmen, and welcome. Thanks for having me. (laughs) We love to start our podcast saying our names and our pronouns and how we identify. I'll go first today. My name is Jasmine. My pronouns are she, her. I identify as queer and also as the janitorial staff for the cast of The (laughs) Elder. I love that. Um, My name is Liv. My pronouns are they, them. I'm a lesbian and also... Oh, that might be it, actually. That might be all I've got. It's real. That's that's the whole, that's all of it. That, that's it for today. And you know what? That's more than enough. Thank you for coming as you are. My name is Carmen. My pronouns are she, her. I identify as queer and also as a dog mom. Oh, we love it. You also identify as a deeply anxious person and a hypochondriac. I do also that, yes. <laughs> Yet... You seek things out that make you scared, and I want to know why. Oh, my God. We're just diving, we're just <laughs> we're jumping diving right, in. right in to this, this scenario. Yeah, It felt like the perfect segue. No, so. totally. Um, yeah. Like, this was always the way I've been, and it was only when I started touring my first book that people began to ask me this question, and I was like, I have never even thought about that, because it's true. Like, I am very anxious. I'm a hypochondriac, and I also seek things out that sort of make me afraid. And even as a child, I was, like, deeply, deeply afraid of horror and scary things, and yet I would read them and watch them and be drawn to them. Back in the days of Blockbuster, <laughs> I would always, like, run into the Blockbuster, and I'd run to the horror section, and I'd always look at the the Hellraiser box, you know, with, with Pinhead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd always, like, stare it down for, like, a minute. I mean, I didn't like check it out. I wasn't allowed to, but I like would like look at it really intensely and then like because it like thrilled me on this like really deep level and then I would just run away. Interesting. So anyway, so I've been like asked this question a lot. The way I've, I guess, reconciled it or concluded it is just that like I'm a hypochondriac and I'm anxious because I'm just like, you know, my nervous system is like turned up to 11. That's just like how I am. But I also love the feeling of having my temperature altered by art, by situations. So it's like this desire. It's like, yes, it like makes me feel a lot of things and it can obviously get out of hand. And I am, you know, deeply medicated. <laughs> like, Aren't we all? You know, I'm in therapy. <laughs> right. Yeah, I do all the things. But like also there is something really thrilling about having that sense of something inside of me is changing. Yes. And I mean, I hate, there's something I hate more than like consuming a piece of art and feeling nothing. Mm -hmm. Like that to me is like the greatest indictment of like something where it's like, I feel unchanged (laughs) like in any way. Um, But, you know, I just love that sensation of being frightened or being unsettled or being turned around by something. And I seek it out, even though it does stress me out. There's something too, I I always wonder about, like horror and being frightened in art that it's like you you are ultimately safe right right like mm-hmm. you're not really in danger so it's like yeah it's like a space to play in to ha- have those changes happen to you totally that's beautiful really yeah no 100 i mean it's like going on a roller coaster where it's like you're yeah. you're ha- you're creating like a situation that's giving you like adrenaline and all this stuff but like ultimately you know you're safe yeah which i mean so i don't i don't like go like cliff jumping that would not feel safe my next question no 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 i mean i actually have gone skydiving but i only went skydiving once I had asked the man who ran the company how many jumps he had done in his lifetime, and he said like forty thousand or some insanely huge number. I said, is, oh. I said, "Has anything ever gone wrong?" And he was like, "Nope." Like, I mean, I'm here. <laughs> like, if something had gone wrong, I wouldn't be here. What would have been the threshold of jumps at which you would have said no? Like, if, if he had said like two hundred? Oh no, I would say no at two hundred. I mean, yeah, I know. If he had said two hundred, I would have been like, "Oh no, that's not enough jumps." He also like, yeah, he's like my dad's age. Like, he's like an old. Like, if it was like a young guy who was like, "I've mm-hmm. successfully done." four jumps i'd be like he's 19 no, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly 
Um, yeah. Yeah. It's like a thing that's like very safe, like at least in the US. That's like the kind of the most extreme version of it. And I felt like James Bond because then I, I hosted a dinner party that night, just like coincidentally, oh my God. just the timing. <laughs> and I was like, once I jumped out of the plane, whatever happened to my body chemically, I like jumped out of the plane. I like don't remember the first like 30 seconds. That's the most like, terrifying part. I literally, there is a blank part of my brain where I think my body was just like, you're not meant to do this. Like, what are you doing? Like, goodbye. <laughs> and just like completely, <laughs> my mind just like vacated my body. But then it was funny because then after it was done, it was great. And then I felt so relaxed. I felt like I was high the rest of the day. I think because like mm. it was like just all that adrenaline and then like it kind of left me and I was just like, I mm-hmm. feel so cool right now. <laughs> it's so chill. Like I've never felt that relaxed in my entire life before or since. But you only seek out those thrills. Okay, you did the skydiving once. But aside from that, you seek out those thrills within art and within the art you make, but you're not going to go um, swimming with sharks tomorrow. No, I mean, yeah, like, it's like stuff that feels safe and that feels like a controlled something. So like, yeah, like I love like haunted houses. Like I'm spooky season is my season. Every haunted attraction, I'm like, pull over, I want to go. And actually in Philly, we have the Eastern State Penitentiary, which is like one of the I think it's the oldest prison in the country. And it's like this really cool museum that's about like the history of like prisons in the US. And it's like this really interesting place. And every year they do like a haunted attraction to like raise money for their programming or whatever. And they actually have this really cool system where you wear like a glow necklace. And so if you want people to touch you or you're okay with like actors touching you, you have a glow necklace on. And then if you don't want it, you can just not take it. And also you can take it off. So like if in the middle of it, you're like, I'm too freaked out. That's cool. You can change your mind. Yeah, it's like consent. And I was like, I've never heard of like a model of consent in like a haunted (laughs) attraction. But it's really cool. And so, yeah, so like a couple of years I didn't have the necklace on. And then one year I did have the necklace and I took it off. And then finally, a couple of years ago, I like had the necklace on. How'd that feel? It was really fun. I got to get like manhandled by like people in masks. I mean, it was actually not that scary. (laughs) It's like really fun. Yeah. So, yeah, for me, like the pleasure of like, you know, horror movies or like, you know, movies that are like unsettling or, or not novels or things like that like just create this sense of anxiety but ultimately it's all in this like safe controlled situation well i want to follow the thread of that because one one of my favorite things about your writing is that like it's like the sexy and the monstrous at the same time like it's yeah because that's all i care about it's, it's like very embodied desire but then also like horror and like being unsettled and it's like very atmospheric those things feel very married to me when i think about your right. work well, it's all it's all arousal, like the word yeah. arousal, like mean in the most literal sense. Like it's like you can be aroused in like a sexual sense, but you also can be aroused in the sense of fear. I mean, again, it's like adrenaline. It's like all this sort of stuff like flowing through your body. And like ultimately mm. that is like pleasurable and intense in its own way because it is also about the centrality of the body. It's like I'm really interested yeah. in like what the body can do and like what the body sort of offers us both in terms of fear and in terms of like sexual pleasure. Like that the body is critical. You can't untie those things things from each other Mm -hmm. like i don't know so it's just yeah it's like weird it's like i i keep trying to like steer myself into other directions and i always just return to fear and sex i love it there's something very essential about that that moves me about your work thank you (laughs) so i want to talk about your process because i heard you saying on another podcast that you write when you need to but not every day Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. i love that because it feels like the demystification of artistry which is the title of my future TED talk and I would love to hear you talk more about that because artists writers were like 
put on this weird, not even just like pedestal, but this other planet, like art happens this specific way and you have to show up and you have to cry and blood, sweat and tears every day. And that's not true. So yeah, what are you talking about yeah. that? Oh my God. This is like my, one of my favorite subjects. So I'm so glad I will watch that TED talk. Thank you. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I am very much of the same philosophy and I feel like there's nothing that kind of makes me more crazy than when I like read like writerly advice that I'm just like, why? Like this is such a silly way of thinking about this process. I mean, it's weird because in some ways I do believe in this like a certain amount of like ineffable magic. Yeah. I mean, not even literal magic, but like there is this like thing that you, I guess you could think of as like spiritual or you could think of as like the subconscious, but there's like, there is like a piece of it that you can sort of feed it, but you can't really like harness it. And like in some ways it's like you're always just like beholden to this like little piece of the magic. Your elusive creative genius. Yeah, precisely. There's a TED Talk yes, about that. Yes, for the Elizabeth Gilbert it's one. So it's good. so good. Yes. I talk about this. It's a good TED Talk. I love it. I talk about this TED Talk all the time and I'm always like super embarrassed to admit it. I'm like, I'm going to recommend a TED Talk. No, it's so great. It's so, it's so inspirational and true. Yes, 100,000%. And I remember like watching that when I was in like grad school or like right after grad school and being like, oh, this is actually an incredibly healthy and normal way to think about the creative yeah. process. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think also one has to engage in the practice that works best for your life like you know if like you are a parent or you have a full-time job or like like there's all kinds of ways in which you have to sort of adjust your practice around the life that you're living and like it becomes your it's your practice right, right. so like some people do write every day because it's helpful to them and that's fine. I do not write every day. Like I write in like fits and spurts. I do a lot of note taking. Like if I have a thought, I always write it down immediately. I have like a centralized place for all my ideas because they will come to me sort of like randomly and I'm like, I can't bother with this right now, but I am going to write it down. Mm. Right. It can be inconvenient. Totally. You're like I'm literally on I-5. Please get out of my head. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. I get ideas in the shower and driving constantly. And I'm like, this is not helpful to me because I'm like, <laughs> you know, shampoo is like running down my face or I'm yeah. driving a literal car. So I, I just have like a system. And like if I'm driving, like my spouse does not drive and I do. So I'll often say to her, like, text me something. I'm going to recite something to you. And I'll like recite this like weird I love sentence that. to her. And she'll be like, okay, so you're, like, texting it to me so that I like have it somewhere so that when I'm like not driving a car like 80 miles an hour, I can, you know, access it and like put it where it needs to go. I'm also like, if I'm, you know, I've got to take my daughter to the vet and I've got to like, I, you know, I teach, like I don't write on those days because like my brain is like occupied. You just have to figure out what works best for you and for the life that you're leading and the goals that you have. I'm always a little suspicious of the like write every day model because it doesn't account for domestic labor or like a life outside yeah. of that. It feels very much like, oh, this is a model of practice that was come up with by like dudes who had wives. So no, totally. And like, obviously, yeah, like I feel like every so often, like that meme goes around about uh, Henry David Thoreau and how like his mom did his laundry. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. All these like, <laughs> you know, all these thinkers who like all their, yeah, all their like creative and intellectual work was being um, supported by like unpaid, unacknowledged female labor. Right. And I think that there is also like a variation on this theme, which is like, oh, but like if you're a parent, wake up and like write for 15 minutes every day and like for some people that is what you do like you can't make the time in big chunks so you like take little snippets where you can mm. and that's also like fine but also i think the idea that it's there's no universal truth no yeah right i don't know i feel like there's this real like industry of like writing advice and it's like there's so little advice i can think of like one piece of advice that is like universal in terms of writing which is you need to read to write like that i feel mm -hmm. like that's the only like piece of writing advice that like mm. is really truly applies across the board but like in general it's like yeah like you have to figure out what works best for you like you know you have to live the life you're living and it doesn't have to be this like holy rarefied you don't have to be in a garret you know <laughs> typing on a typewriter and like you know like all these like weird ideas we have about writing that 
come from these like romantic ideas like you have to just make it work for you yeah it's like um it's art is like a dandelion growing in a pavement you know yeah it's fine it doesn't need to be anything in particular right right precisely so my follow-up question then is what did you learn in the year that you took off to write which year? Which year? Okay, good question. I just I was listening to you on a different podcast recently, and you said you took off a one year specifically to write recently, and I wonder. Oh, it was uh, last year, and it was when COVID happened, and I got nothing done. Cute. <laughs> Cute. <laughs> Love because, it. You know, so yeah, so I mean, yes. When I say take off, what I mean is I work really well in like a residency environment where I'm like not distracted by other things. I'm not teaching, so I just sort of like work a bunch, and then I like take time off and then I like go to a residency and that's usually where I'm being sort of fed and like I'm being supported in this exact way and I'm like kind of away from distractions and then I'm incredibly productive so like my second book was almost entirely written in residencies because I just like needed the space and so I sort of took off 2020 ahead of time like in 2019 was like I have this new book I'm working on like I need I need the time I'll take off from teaching and then of course COVID and I got like literally Mm -hmm. nothing done I mean it was like quite quite terrible (laughs) Um, I mean terrible for a lot of reasons but like I because I was like too stressed out. I was like, I can't focus on anything. And I, I mean, everything just like shut down and it was just, yeah, it was, it was bad. I mean, it was really bad. It was a hard time to say the least. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I guess for me, it's just like, I know that I need this space. And so I just like work until I can take a break and then I do the thing and then I come back. And it's just like, this is like the way that I have figured out how to make my process work. And some of that came from like, because when I first started writing, I was adjunct teaching. So like I was teaching, but it was very low paid and very random. Like I would like have some classes sometimes and not others. And so it was just this sort of like the way my brain became accustomed to like cre- the creative process and i do write at home i've been writing at home but yeah no the year i took off was completely gone yeah (laughs) it happens i think most artists response to covid were one of two things it was either i wrote that album or i finished that screenplay or oh i just started 10 new projects or um no i was too stressed out i did nothing and both are perfectly acceptable totally yeah they both make complete sense yeah Mm -hmm. i mean i'm a little bit i feel like when someone's like i did all these projects i'm like don't tell me that i don't want to hear that (laughs) keep that that private but yeah i definitely was more on the side of like like i mentioned i am a hypochondriac like a pandemic is like literally my worst nightmare i mean it's like it's like you could not have crafted a more specific trigger for me and you lived through your nightmare you you survived it. That's amazing. Well, I'm living through. I mean, we're st- you know, like I'm still in it. It's, yeah, we're not done. No, but, <laughs> but I'm saying like, you know, yeah. that is awful and terrible and I'm sorry. And you survived it and that's fucking amazing. And you should be so proud of yourself. That's true. That's true. I did survive it with, you know, minimal psychic trauma, I think. I think. Well, well I guess we'll oh, see. Oh, I have a lot of that. I don't know. <laughs> but I still count myself a survivor. Come on now. Definitely. Yeah. I'm just like ready to tell my, I'm already like ready to be a grandmother telling children's stories being like, you don't even know. The reason I buy hand sanitizer <laughs> by the gallon is because. <laughs> I want to talk to you about mentorship. Mm-hmm. It's something that I'm really passionate about. I try to find someone to mentor wherever I am. We're in Canada right now. We've been here for six months and I'm mentoring these two high schoolers who want to be actors. So I'm curious if you mentor anyone or if you had queer mentors growing up Mm. and Mm. the role that may have played and if you have any queer mentors now. So growing up, no, I did not have, I did have mentors, but not queer mentors, which I think is just partially a symptom of, you know, I was a kid in the 90s. I was a teen in the early 2000s. Like it was just like a weird time to be 
queer. And as far as I yeah. know, I, I had one gay teacher in college that I knew of who was like openly gay. And like before that, like I didn't have any, there weren't any kids out of my school that I was aware of or that I knew. I mean, the language for queerness was very limited to the point where I, a queer person, did not understand that when I thought about kissing my friend's freckles all over her face, that that meant that I was gay. Like, I did not understand that. Classic. Like, I was just like, is that just like a yeah. thing you do? Like, you just think about kissing your friend's freckles? Yeah, everybody wants that. <laughs> everybody wants that? But I thought everyone did want that. <laughs> I mean, is that what makes me gay? Right, I mean, yeah, right, exactly. Like, but I, so I, I really, like, didn't, like, have that framework. And it really wasn't until I got to college and, like, one of my best friends in college was an openly, like, bi woman. And I remember her being like, I'm bi and this is what this is. And I was like, is that what I am? Like, like, I remember just, it was like that. It was like just somebody explaining what she was and feeling like, oh, and that's not like the language I use anymore, but like it was just this moment of like recognition. And I felt like she kind of gave me the ability to like step into that place. So like I didn't really, like I had a mentor who was like, actually I have a mentor who I like feel like in my soul is queer, but I don't actually know if she is, but I had like a, like a female pastor growing up who was like very special to me who like was really kind to me and like gave me a lot of like stuff to read and was just like this very like really positive presence in my life and like as an adult I do have like older queer mentors like people who I've met and gotten to know who like are very special to me and also getting to see and talk to older queer people is like such a special gift like you know I mean it's like I always feel very emotional (laughs) when I meet older queer people it makes me cry oh my god because it's like oh my god like you you did it you're older and you're like living your life and like it's really beautiful and really special yeah let me say on your kitchen counter please yeah. like just yeah. let me stay for a minute yeah yeah and I I feel like I've just always been a person who like I've like lived in a lot of different places and I've always just like kind of gathered like sweet like tender queer or queer adjacent people who have like been a little older who like have their shit together and like take care of me very gently <laughs> like, oh, I feel like we all need that we all need that it's so important it's like there are like people in my life who then I feel like that person and I'm like I will feed you like what do you need do you need a trip mm-hmm. do you need a play ticket do you need a, like what do you need <laughs> you know yeah um and I also teach which is like I mean it's a different kind of relationship and I've had students say to me like you're the first out professor I've had and like the fact that you just like wow casually mention and I'm like that cannot be true like that in this day that seems like shocking to me but I think it can be true yeah it's and I I think just like me you know I'll just like be like oh yeah like my wife like it's always like a little bit I think strange um Mm. and it's really important to me to like be that person especially in like a queer context where it's like if you don't have anyone to talk to like you can come talk to me about queer stuff or like also I can talk about like queer art and like what it means to be a queer artist and what it means to be like a public figure who's queer or like a person who's like out in her everyday life like you know and all of that feels really important because I just did not have that and I mean it turned out okay but like I really really could have really used an adult, <laughs> like a queer adult in that sense, like when I was younger. And I wish I had had that. Yeah. I'm just sitting with that for a second. <laughs> it's such a beautiful thing. It's just, it. it is the dream. Yeah. I want to ask you a little bit about your book in the dream house, which is about sort of being in and leaving an abusive relationship. And I was thinking that you must have had to talk about abuse a lot in talking about and promoting it. And I was wondering if there was anything you wish you had been asked or had been asked differently. I mean, yeah, it's hard to talk about. Like it's gotten it's I sort of have this plan that like after all of my press is done, but my plan is to like stop talking about it at some point because it is just like so it's just like so intense. Of um, and I think, you know, the hard thing about it was like a lot of the questions I would get, I got asked more than I thought about like the details of the relationship. In the, at first, I was not expecting it. Like the first interview I did for the book was like before it came out, it was like I like went to this interview, it was an NPR interview. And the question was 
just about like I don't remember exactly the question was. It was a very personal question. Like it was not. It was not like talk about the form of the book or talk about like you know yeah. what does it mean to write about trauma. But it was like a very intense personal question, and I burst into tears, mm-hmm. and I like cried through the whole interview, and I was so embarrassed. I was like hysterical, and I like left the interview, and I like called my publicist, and it was just like, crying, and I was like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I like fucked up the interview, and I was like really distressed. It doesn't sound like you fucked up the interview. No, no, and then I don't think they did either. It's just like I think I just hadn't prepared myself for like the reality of having to put this book out into the world and then having to discuss in essence the worst or one of the worst things that's ever happened to me mm-hmm. right and like yeah. that's a really tall order like for a person yeah. and and also a person who has written before exclusively fiction and so like was used to just talking about like craft and like whatever and i feel like there's also this thing that happens and i think it happens if you write about trauma i think it happens if you are queer or non-white or a woman where like people really want to zero in on like the autobiographical stuff and they want to yep. zero in on like the trauma and the grittiness of it they're less interested in the questions of like craft yeah and i'm like i'll talk about craft all day like i'll talk about like writing a book which is like what i'm good at and what i do until the cows come home but like i would rather not just like go into these like intense detailed discussions for sure also i would argue hello i already gave you the book yeah like that is everything that i want you to know and my whole soul translated through this book that's it you don't need any more like you're fucking welcome (laughs) yes yes i mean i wish i had said that exact thing um i mean as it was i was just like i'd rather not or like this the trick that they teach you and now that i've had like official media training but like a thing they teach you which is like answer the question you wish you had been asked and not the question that was asked of you yeah you're allowed Mm -hmm. to just say whatever right exactly i remember finding that out i'm like wait i'm allowed to say whatever (laughs) didn't you feel so powerful i also like remember that being like like, oh my god, that's like the best piece of like life advice. Yeah. <laughs> Which is actually kind of funny. It would have been funny if you're like, yeah, so my favorite food is in fact waffles. And the reason is. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, yeah, I don't know. And I mean, like I did all these other things sort of during the tour that would help me keep myself safe. So for example, like I when we did Q&As, like we did written Q&As like on cards. So someone could sort of screen them, like the person who's interviewing me. So like, you know, we can sort of stay away from certain subjects. And, you know, it worked out fine. And it was, you know, fine. But and I've like actually forgotten the question that you asked me. <laughs> just that it set me off on this tangent. But yeah, just if there was anything you wish you had been asked or been asked in a different way. I mean, people really covered it. Like I feel like we really ran the gamut of like, yeah, I suppose they must have. Yeah. Thank you for sharing about all of that. Oh, of yeah. course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have uh, a question and then we're going to play a little game. Oh, okay. Um, we want to hear about the first time you remember seeing a queer person and recognizing yourself in them. And we call this Ring of Keys. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even have to be a person. It can be like like sure. a media image or like sure. a feeling or, you know. Yeah. Ring of Keys always makes me, first of all, makes me ball my eyes every time I listen to it. And I think mm-hmm. it's because it's such a beautiful encapsulation of this, like, concept of, like, your ghost touching someone else's ghost, which I think is, like, a really beautiful sort of moment of, like, human connection. My first moment of, like, huh was when I saw Titanic when I was like 11. Titanic! (laughs) Yeah, well, it's really funny because my mom took me to see it. My mom had seen it already and she said, because she was very stickler about like ratings and and movie content. And so she said, I'll let you see it, but only if you let me cover your eyes during, there's a part I want to cover your eyes. And I said, okay, because I really wanted to see it. And what she did was she covered my eyes during the sex scene. Yeah. Not, never occurred to her that, like, she would need to cover my – because I think in her braid, like, I was not – I couldn't be gay. Like, it just like, never crossed her mind. And so Kate Winslet's breasts were, like, burned into my retinas and, like, my consciousness for, like, my whole – but I was, like, I was, like, pre-sexual. Like, I wasn't sexual yet. Like, I was only 11, but I was, like, huh. And, like, that really, like, did something. Never forget that. <laughs> never going to forget that. 
And then, yeah, I feel like I'm trying to think of the first time I like saw a gay person that really made me. It must have been my friend Anne, the same person that was like when I was in college, because she was also very like she was androgynous. So she she sort of was doing this like thing that I had just never seen before. So Anne was just like she had like really like feminine hair, but then she like she had this like swagger and she like dressed sort of androgynously, and I was just like. I'm picking up whatever you're putting down. Like, I was, yeah, yeah. I don't know what it is exactly, <laughs> but like, yeah. There's something magic about it. It's like compelling. Yeah. And I mean, in retrospect, also, like, I feel like I watch a lot of movies now that I watch as like a younger person and be like, oh, got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now <laughs> I understand my response. Sense. To- <laughs> <laughs> like, this is super gay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. I mean, I feel like just any kind of like, even very gentle, like gender fuckery. Like, I was always oh, God. Just, like, huh. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. What's that about? Or like, oh my God, what was the the first movie that Kira Knightley was in? Where she's just oh. like also like it's like she's Robin Hood. Yeah. And she's like super yeah. budge. It's an underrated yeah. film, actually. God, she really like and then Bend it like Beckham. She was really oh, yeah. she was oh, really giving it for Beckham. us. You know? Oh my god. <laughs> Kira Knightley was walking the walk. I've actually never seen that movie. You've got, what? We, we have to watch it. I've never seen Bend It Like Beckham. Isn't that weird? Bend It Like Beckham is it is the gayest non-gay movie I've ever seen in my entire life. Like it's like it's not gay even slightly. <laughs> And yet it like it's just like dripping with it because it's but just like wasn't it meant to be? I feel like I've read articles saying that it was gay, but I then- can't remember now whether this is an urban legend or not. I'd have to look it up. But I, I definitely remember as a teenager hearing whispers like in the original version of the screenplay, they were gonna get together at the end and then they and then they weren't allowed to do yeah, that. I've so they added the coach character. It. And like yeah. I yeah, so I don't remember how true that is, but I always really clung to that. I'm like, yeah, 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 they are. I'm right. They are supposed that that is how it's supposed to go, you know? Yeah. I also am like not sure if that's because I do feel like I hear that about a lot of movies and I'm like, yeah. I wanna believe that that's true. Like, I want to believe that this movie was supposed to be gay. I fall for it every time. Every time I'm like, yes, that's right. (laughs) I'm going to do the research and I will report back. Okay, thank you. We're going to play a game. Okay. And this week we're playing How Gay Is It? So I'm going to say something and you need to give me an exact percentage of how gay it is. I'm talking 68.1%, And here we go. Carmen, watching the L word at 6 p.m. so you can be in bed by 8. <laughs> 73%. Liv, chai tea with coconut milk. 65. Liv, loving Florence Pugh. Uh, a good 79. <laughs> Carmen, uh, not loving Zach Braff. <laughs> 89. <laughs> Both of you. Hating that Florence Pugh is with Zach Braff. Oh, I got 110%. I love love. I, I plead the fifth. I abstain. I find it very upsetting. I also am like obsessed with her. And I I mean, it's like weird because I was a certain age. I've seen Garden State and I've seen all Scrubs a million times. But also when I realized they were together, I got mm-hmm. very upset. I was yeah. raised on Scrubs. <laughs> How gay is watching Scrubs? Oh. Yeah, like 20 Four percent. Yeah, okay. thirty-two. Yeah, it's low. Liv wearing multiple chunky rings. Ooh, forty-three. You're gonna have to take them off later. <laughs> True. <laughs> Carmen doing mushrooms and really getting to know your pet. <laughs> oh, that's like a solid. Uh, I'd say like seventy-five. Liv arm tattoos of trees. Oh God, seventy-eight point nine. Carmen feminine studies in college. Uh, sixty. Both of you writing essays for fun. I do that. <laughs> 51. <laughs> yeah, 51. I think that's correct. Liv, fresh fruit as a dessert. 87. 
Carmen, Vivaldi's Violin Concerto Number no. 2 in G minor, a.k.a. the song in Portrait of a Lady on Fire. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. I was be like, I'm sorry. I have literally no idea. Uh, oh, 100, 100%. Both of you, the most important one. How gay is it to abolish the police? 100, 110. Yes, agreed. 75 to allow room. We don't want to keep the straights yeah, out. Exactly. But we want it clear that like, right, the gays right, are for right. it. <laughs> so 75 to 110. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Final question of the day. What is everyone going to do this week to further the gay agenda? I'm, I'm going to have gay sex. <laughs> Hell yeah! <laughs> You're the first person to say that, and I love you for Wait, it. Wait, what? Seriously? <laughs> no one has said it. <laughs> Thank you. This week, I think, um, to further the gay agenda, I'm going to clean out my apartment because gays should live in clean environments. Uh, we we both have to we both have to pack up our places, and that's also what I was going to say. I'm going to spend some quality time with Jasmine's cat. I'm going to pat Zoa. That's what I'm going to do. My actual feline cat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Make this clear. Yes. I have Fair one. Cat. Couldn't she couldn't meows. be clear? Her name is Zoa. Her name is Zoa, and she's perfect. And I want to say hi. Anyway, thank you for coming on to our podcast. It's my pleasure. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. After every interview, there is still so much more for us to read and learn and talk about. So we have citations we want to share with you. So in this episode, Carmen talked about the importance of mentorship in her work. She was sharing stories about her mentors growing up and also talking to us about the importance of having older LGBTQ representation. So here's this link. It's called Generations of Mentorship, Conversations with LGBTQ Elders by Jamal Jordan for the New York Times. It's a photo story from 2019. And here's this quote. As queerness starts to carry less and less stigma, will it be easier for young LGBT people to imagine a life where they actually grow old? Which like hits so deep and and is something I think about all the time and breaks my heart and like makes my brain fizz and read the article. <laughs> During the episode, Carmen shared how it was for her to write about her personal experience with abuse and trauma in queer relationships as it relates to her memoir in the dream house. So the article is called On Writing About Whatever You Want by Carmen Maria Machado for The Creative Independent. It's an interview from 2017. She said, I needed to approach it all these different ways and have all of these failed experiments in order to get to the place where I could feel like, oh, this is actually the way I want to be doing this. Sometimes it takes a while to get there. You can find all of these links and more in the episode description. This has been the Homo Schedule. I'm Jasmine Savoy Brown, your host, producer, and creator of the show. And I'm Liv Hewson, your host and producer. The Homo Schedule is produced by Multitude for Netflix. Our lead producer is Eric Silver, our engineer and editor is Misha Stanton, and our executive producer is Amanda McLaughlin. Be sure to follow Most, Netflix's home for LGBTQ plus storytelling on Twitter and Instagram at Most. And the best way to help us keep advancing the gay agenda is to tell a friend about the show. So post about us on socials or text someone a link to your favorite episode. We'll see you next week. This meeting has been adjourned. <laughs> <laughs>